I saw a um, bad joke this morning about uh, the church summer cantata is where is everybody? But we don't have that problem. So <laughs> everybody is here. That's where everybody is. It's nice to see you all. I um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you head to the back, your teacher will go. It's just a setting in which you can hear the, the scriptures in a more age-appropriate way. And for the rest of us, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. And the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy, o you, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, what an awesome God we get to worship. You were, you are, and you are to come. Everything that exists is because you created it and it stays together just as it is because it's your will that it be that way. Lord, it will never grow tiresome in eternity to admit how holy you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would, in our fallen and frail way, get a taste of that even now. Um, Lord, as we open your word, we confess that we're weak, that uh, our minds are clouded, that we're thinking of 10,000 other things right now. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us, and would you open your word to us that we might see and understand, that we might hear the life-giving words and see more gloriously Jesus Christ in his fullness. Be with us now as we study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, um, we, I said it was the final run-in that, that Jesus was going to have in Jerusalem. It was the final challenge to him. Um, and it was, and remember who that was with, that was the Sadducees and the, and the scribes. And at the end of that, some of the scribes said, wow, you answered really well. And, and that was kind of where we left it. But what happens now, the section that we're going to look at now, is Jesus is going to address those scribes. You see, when somebody responds to Jesus, even a little bit, even a touch openly, Jesus is ready to engage them. When they come and they challenge him, he shuts them down. But when somebody comes and they, they're, they're to that point where they seem like they're open to who he is, they say, hey, you answered well. Jesus is ready to engage him, and that's exactly what he does. So because I'm very clever, I titled this sermon, Scribal Errors. That's, that's kind of a cool play on words. Uh, it's actually completely inappropriate because what a scribal error is, it's a technical term. Uh, back in the old days, before they had printing presses, when people would have to write out books by hand, they would copy them out by hand, a scribal error would be like if a scribe is writing it out and he repeats a word. So that, that because he just wasn't paying attention, his mind drifted for a minute, and he wrote that twice, or he might, uh, his eyes might skip down the page if there were two sentences that looked similar. His eyes might skip as he's finishing the one sentence and pick up the next one and omit something, or they might just have spelling errors. Those are scribal errors. There are none in this scripture. <laughs> what I mean by scribal errors is the, Jesus is addressing to the scribes the errors that they have. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about the scribes' errors about the Messiah, they need to understand the Messiah correctly. Then he's going to kind of indirectly address the scribal errors about themselves. Who do they think they are? 
And in the end, he's going to give us an example of what true greatness actually really is. So it starts out with this unprompted question, right? Jesus is not asked anything. The last words out of anybody's mouth were the scribes going, you have answered well. And now Jesus turns to them and he asks them a question. He says, uh, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So it's an unprompted question. He just kind of throws it at them, but he's inviting them in. He's drawing them in. He's saying, look, you scribes, you need to understand who the Messiah really is. Now, we know he's not addressing the Sadducees because they just disappeared, and the Sadducees wouldn't have recommend, or, uh, recognized uh, the Psalms as inspired or authoritative anyway. So he's talking to these scribes, and he invites them into this question of who really is the Messiah. Um, so he, he asks the question, how can the Christ be the David's son? How can they say that? And that's actually not a bad thing. That's not entirely wrong to say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son. That's based on 2 Samuel 7. When God creates his covenant with David, he says, your son will sit on the throne forever, and your son will build the temple. And so that's why they're looking for David's son to come and do those things, is because God promised he would. That's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely full. It doesn't answer the fullness of who the Messiah actually is. So what Jesus does next is he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. That is a widely quoted psalm in the New Testament, and it's used in a variety of different ways and is really a great theological challenge to see what the understanding was, and I'm not going to touch that. Um, we're not going to look at all the options on it. What we want to do is focus on what Luke has to say, what is Jesus teaching us from it. So before we do that, I want to show you something, um, and then I promise after we look at this, we'll back up to where Jesus is talking and it'll help. So what I've done on this slide is I've tried to create what you might see in your Bible if you have an ESV and you open up to Psalm 110. This, is, this might be what it looks like. Um, I just put that together. So there's a lot going on on this little page, this little quote here. There's a lot up there. And so what I want to do is just walk through real quick to help you understand what you see in your Bible. So the first thing is that title, Sit at My Right Hand. In the ESV, it's in italics, and it's above the psalm. That is something the publishers added. They, they set these, they're called section headings, and they'll put them in your Bible. And the idea is it's supposed to help you read and understand the, the coming section. What is this about? They're trying to summarize it for you. That is not in the original text. It is not inspired. So if you've got something other than the ESV and you look up Psalm 110, you, go, you may say, well, that's not mine. Yeah, because that's the publisher's edition. So if I was to say, would you please read Psalm 110, verse 1, you would not start at sit at my right hand. You would start at the beginning. And so that's what that is. The next section, and this is what's really important here, is it says a psalm of David. And you notice in this case it's what's called small caps. They're all capital letters, but some are shorter than the other ones. In the ESV, they use that to set these psalm titles off. Other translations or other publishers might put them in italics. Sometimes they just put the words in there. Um, this title, if the psalm has a title, and many of them do, that's inspired. That's in the original text. That's in the Hebrew. So that, is, that actually is supposed to be there. In the Hebrew Bible, that's verse 1. In, in the English Bible, we say that's verse 0 because we start verse 1 at where the psalm begins. But that is actually part of the Hebrew text. There's 
some debate over when they were added and who added them and what was going on, but we have no scriptural evidence that they were ever not there. So when they assembled the Psalms, when they put them together, somebody, one of the editors, put in these titles. And for all intents and purposes, that means they're supposed to be there. So when you read a Psalm, don't skip that one. You can skip the one before it, but don't skip that one. It, it means something. Um, this one is actually pretty helpful because Jesus interprets it for us, but sometimes they're not so helpful. What does it mean of David? Is it, does it mean it's about David? That would be of David. Does it mean David wrote it? This is one of the Psalms that David wrote. It's of David. Or does it mean it's written in the style, in the, in the, the way that David would write it? It's of David in that sense. Um, sometimes it's not really clear. In this one, we get a divine interpretation, and we know this is by David. So we have authority on that one. That's an important part, and we'll come back to that. The next thing that, to look at is this term, the Lord, and you notice it's in small caps also. When you see the Lord, what that is, is in the Hebrew, it was the divine name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. That was originally there, and what happened was the Jewish tradition was they didn't want to violate the third commandment by using the Lord's name in vain, so whenever they saw Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. So that was the discipline, was whenever you saw Yahweh, you, you said the Lord, uh, because you didn't want to violate his command and, and, and possibly use his name in vain. I think that's a bad idea, personally. <laughs> it's God's word. He wrote it. If he says his name, it's not in vain. It can't, by definition, cannot be in vain. But this is just the tradition that's been handed on to us. So what our modern Bibles will do, will translate, whenever Yahweh is used, they'll use uh, small caps like that. The problem is when you get Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, then the Lord is not in small caps, but God is in small caps. And so it can get kind of confusing. But when you see it like that, that means God's divine name, his personal name. I got to stop on this for one second. Where did that Yahweh come from? Well, while Moses was up on the mountain at the burning bush, God told him, go to Israel and tell them their God is going to deliver him. And Moses said, well, who am I to say? If they say, who sent you, what, what name am I supposed to give them? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And that was the answer. You see, God doesn't have a name. That, that term, I am, simply means existence, reality, presence. You see, if there was, never, if there was a time where there was nothing, if there was no existence, nothing, absolute nothing, what would we have today? Nothing. You don't get something from nothing. Our existence is a derived existence. It comes from ultimate existence. And what God is saying in his divine name, I am, is he's saying, I don't need anything else. I just am. I exist. Therefore, everything exists because I have decided it will. I am is his ultimate, holiest most richest meaning of who he is, is pure existence, perfect existence, complete existence. And so we derive from that. So that's what his covenant name means. Um, and, and the Jews, and I don't think it was a bad inclination to say we, that name is so holy we don't want to touch it, so we're going to substitute the Lord instead. I don't think that's a bad move, but what winds up happening is we've kind of obscured what the divine name is when we do that. And so what happens here is, is we get that instead. So if you ever see those small caps in the Bible, that's what's going on, okay? 
Now, the last phrase, the last part of this phrase, it just says Lord, and that's not in small caps. That is actually the word Adonai, which means Lord. It could be translated Lord or Master. Um, it's a term of respect, Sir. David is sometimes referred to as my Lord. Um, it's that, that term of deference. So that's what's happening there. So enough for the Bible. Oh, not power off. Don't power off. Did it power off? Yeah, I think I accidentally hit it twice because I was reaching for the other one. Okay. Yeah, we'll figure it out later. Uh, you don't need to look at that anyway. It was just that boring picture. That same graphic you've been looking at for months. You know, you don't need to see that. Um, so let's take that information. So with that information in our heads, right, this is a Psalm of David. And Yahweh said to my Lord, that's what's going on. We want, I wanted to go back to the original and see that. Now let's come back and see what Jesus does with that. So Jesus says, remember, he asked the question, how can they say that the Christ is David's son when David himself in the book of Psalms says this? So now when we take the Hebrew and we bring it into Greek, and this was about 200 years before Christ, they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they maintain that, that, that convention of saying the Lord instead of Yahweh. And so it gets translated into the Greek as kurios, which is Lord. So it's not like in their Greek text we have two different words here. We have to know that back in, he, in, in the psalm, that's what David had done. Um, so Jesus asks, if David said this, then how can the, he, his son be the Messiah? Because he said, Yahweh said to my Lord, the one who is going to do this is going to be my Lord, David says. I am beneath this king that, that he's going to establish. He's going to sit at his right hand. I am underneath him. He's my Lord. David never called anybody else Lord when he was the king. He didn't call Solomon Lord. He did, when Absalom tried to revolt against him, he didn't call him Lord. He never called anybody Lord. He was the king. Anybody else came from him. And so what Jesus is saying here is when you look at the Messiah, you have to understand he's descended from David. That solid biblical prophecy, that solid biblical promise that the Messiah would come from David. But you scribes are missing something. There's more to this Messiah than just a human child of David. He is David's Lord. And now, since we're looking at this in Greek, this is almost, this is pretty literally translated from the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint. Uh, word for word, they pick it up. So this is what the, the people who read the Greek Old Testament would be familiar with. But I'm wondering if Luke or Jesus aren't playing with the words here a little bit. Which one is Yahweh? Yahweh said to my Yahweh. The Lord gets kind of moved back and forth. What it is is Jesus here is claiming that he is more than that. And, and Jesus is not, this isn't the only time Jesus ever used the divine name to apply to himself. If you look in John chapter 7, he's had this long run-in with the Pharisees, and they're arguing back and forth. And they, he said, look, if I set you free, you're free indeed. And the Pharisees, so full of themselves, said, we have never been slaves to anybody. So explain to me who's running Jerusalem right now. <laughs> That's the Romans. Aren't you slaves to them? Jesus says, hey, look, if I set you free, you're free. And the, the point he makes with them is, is, look to what Abraham was doing. Abraham looked to my day and rejoiced because he knew I would set them free. And they say, wait a minute, you're only 30. Abraham saw your day? And his answer to them is, before Abraham was, I am. 
Now, that's not just bad Greek. That is spot-on perfect Greek. That is how the divine name was written because they didn't always put the Lord in the Old Testament. You had to sometimes use the divine name. And that's how we know that Yahweh means I am because in Greek it's ego emi, which is I am, I am. It is, again, that's that statement of pure existence, that pure reality. And Jesus looks at him and says, before Abraham was Yahweh. And you know, how, you know what their response was? Well, we got to kill him. He can't say things like that. And so they try to kill him because he has announced to them who he truly is. So now I take that information and bring that to this thing. These, these Pharisees, or these scribes rather, are looking at the Messiah and they're saying he's going to be an earthly kingly ruler. And that's it. And what Jesus is inviting them into, what he's, he's, he challenges them with, he says, you have to understand the nature of the Messiah. Because if you don't understand the nature of the Messiah, you won't understand the nature of your God. That's what he's invited them into through this, par or through this, uh, this um, psalm of David. As he tells them to, come, to trust. This is your scribal error, is you need to know the Messiah. And so now the next thing he does is he addresses their scribal error about themselves. But he doesn't address them. After he has just asked them this question, they've already been left speechless by his previous answer. They probably don't know what to do with this one. He turns to the crowd. And as he addresses the crowd right in front of the scribes, he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in marketplaces and the best seats in synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So first of all, he says, you have to know who God is. You have to know who the Messiah is. Now he's saying, you scribes, you need to know who you are. So he warns the crowd, beware of people like this. These, these long robes that they wear, they're very expensive. They're, they're hard to maintain. They cost a lot of money. And they love to put on their finest and walk through the marketplace and just have people admire how handsome they are and how, how finely dressed they are. It was a sign of authority. It was a sign of wealth. They were demanding respect when they went through the marketplace. He also says they also want these special greetings as they walk through the marketplace. As they go around, they want to be greeted, oh, rabbi. And the Talmud, the, the, the Jewish kind of interpretation of the law, prescribed this is how you greet a teacher of the law. This is how you will greet these, these scribes who, who handle the, the sacred text on a regular basis. And they just love that. They love the greeting. Oh, great rabbi. Oh, yes, yes. Let me bless you with my presence. What they would do is they would go to the synagogue and they would take the best seats in the house. They would go to a feast. And, and remember when Jesus had this running with them before, he said, don't go to the front head of the table when you come to a feast. Sit at the end and get invited up. They apparently didn't get that memo because they're doing this. They come to the synagogue. They sit right up front. I am so pleased at how humble you all are because these front rows are empty. That just shows you are not fighting for the seats of honor. Um, you're, you're taking a very humble place. But these scribes wanted to be up front so everybody could look at them and see them as they listened to the, the scriptures being read and explained. And, and they wanted to be in the, in the seats of honor because they're, they're honorable people. So that's the, the type of people they are. And Jesus diagnoses them. He says, they devour widows' houses. And that word for devour, you know what that means? Devour. It, it just means they would consume everything about the widows. So what does that mean? We don't know. Luke didn't unpack it. It could be 
that they would charge them for uh, legal, under the law of God, you know, religious legal, they may charge them for religious advice. They may demand uh, offerings from them at the temple or something. We don't know, but whatever it was, these guys who wanted to look so sharp and have all the best seats and so much respect, they went to the weakest, the most vulnerable people in all of society and extorted money out of them. They devoured their houses. Whatever income they had, they wanted it. That's pretty slimy. And they make a pretense of long prayers. Let us pray so you can hear my voice, so you can hear how eloquent I am, and I'm just going to talk to myself for half an hour. That was their attitude. Um, they were so filled with themselves, they thought themselves to be so important that this was how they behaved. And they apparently didn't see a problem with devouring widows' houses. What's the issue? They owe it to us. We are in this position of authority. So Jesus warns the scribes to not be filled with, them with, with themselves, but who did he address when he did this? He told us, beware of people like this. And when I hear that, I know one person who's very close to me who can be like that. And that's me. One of the sins that I tend to sometimes is pride. And so I've had to figure out, how, Lord, help me fight this pride. How, how do I battle against this? And this can happen to all of us. If somebody praises you for something, there is always the danger of believing your own press and thinking, oh, you know, they're right, doggone it. I am that nice. And so how do you fight this? My, my initial reaction when somebody comes and compliments me is my first reaction is to believe them and say, oh, they're, I, I am that great. Isn't that wonderful? And then as soon as I hear that echoing in my own head, I go, wait a minute, time out. No, I'm terrible. And, and the truth is both of these things are wrong. I'm not that great, and I'm not that terrible. <laughs> so it, the way I understand humility, the biblical understanding of humility, is for us to understand who we are in the presence of God, not in the presence of other people. So what I've, I've begun to fight this battle against pride with is when somebody compliments me, and I feel that, that heartstring twinging going, hey, yeah, digging that, the, what I've learned to do is instead of saying, no, that's not true. Oh, no, because that can either be false, oh, say it again, um, or it can be uh, false in that they're, what they've said is actually right about you. Maybe you are that nice. Maybe you are that good looking. Maybe you were that kind or that smart or something. That may be true. So to either ask for more or to deny it is both wrong. So what I found is what I do at that point is I look to God and I pray and say, Lord, how do you see me in light of this? What is it that this person said about me that is true because of who you are, not because of who I am? And what I found is when, when praise comes and pride wells up, turning to God and saying, God, show me, help me to understand who I am in light of this, it eventually, it takes a while for the, the pride to wear off, but it eventually helps me analyze what they've said in, a, in an accurate way and say, you know what? Um, thank you. That, that was a very kind thing to say. And to realize, you know, God really did work through me in that way. That, that was really neat. And it's not about me. It's not the hammer being proud because it's a hammer. It, it's not the saw going, look at the house I built. It's the saw in the hand of the master going, ah, look what the master built. And I got to participate. So I think that's a better way to avoid this sin that they're guilty of, is to constantly, whenever we have pride welling up in ourselves, look to God and say, God, how do you see me in light of this? And when you see those good things, recognize that they are gifts of God. God's using you in this instance and say, thank you, Lord. And then you can turn to the person who compliments you and say, thank you. 
with a heart that isn't filled with pride. And golly, you're right, and aren't I cool? And, and you can take off those long robes, and you can cut the prayers short because you don't like to hear yourself pray all the time. It, what you have to do is not focus on the person and not focus on yourself, but in the light of that, focus on God. And isn't that what Jesus just did for them? He said, look, you have to understand your Messiah. He is more than a man. He is more than just David's son. And so now when you're proud, when you come in and you think you're all, all, all hot and stuff, look into the Messiah and see in light of him who you really are. What is your function in the kingdom? Understand your accurate place in the kingdom. And I'll tell you, he's telling them this is going to be liberating. This is going to set you free from the chains that pride is. Because once you get addicted to pride, once you get addicted to the, the, the praises of others and the compliments, when they go away, it's devastating. But if you're looking to God and you're saying, Lord, you define for me who I am, when the praises come, that's wonderful. It re you go, Lord, I recognize you're working in me. When the praises don't go, you're not shattered because you still have your hope rooted in who God is, who he has placed you, where he has placed you in his kingdom, what role he has for you. It takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off of you. It takes the pressure off of your friends. You don't have to go fishing for compliments. All of that, it is so liberating to say, I am who God says I am, and that's all I am, and I'm content with that. So, Lord, who am I? What am I doing? What are you doing in and through me? How am I blessing other people? And then when people recognize that, you're actually, by saying thank you, you're actually praising God because you recognize it's his work in you. So this is the problem with the scribes is they didn't understand themselves right. They thought they were hot stuff, and they weren't. They didn't understand who the Messiah was. But Jesus is not done quite with the, with the uh, scribes yet. He, remember, he's inviting them in. He's asking them, come now. And so what he's going to give us next is that here's a picture of what real, true greatness looks like. This, if you want to be all of that, this is what you have to look like. So the true greatness, Jesus is, remember, he was in the, the uh, temple talking at the beginning of chapter 20. He was in the temple teaching when he got his first challenge. Apparently, he hasn't left yet. Because after he says this, he addresses the people. He looks up, and he saw rich people putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This is what true greatness looks like. So when the offering plate comes around, this, we're declaring this 100% Sunday. So everything in your bank account, just drop it right in there, right? That's not the point of this. He looks, he's in the temple, probably in the court of the women. So there was the outer court, the big, huge outer court was the court of the Gentiles. Then the next court in was the court of the women. And then the next court in was even smaller, it was the court of the men. And then there was the temple proper. So he was probably in the, the court of the women because in the court of the women, there were 13 um, receptacles for putting your offering in. They looked like trumpets. They were kind of you know, bowl-shaped so you could put your, your offerings in. And he looks up and he sees people putting their money in. And he's, he recognizes these people who come up and put their money in are rich. Well, how did he know that? Probably because of the money they're putting in. I think that would be a pretty good indication. They're putting a lot of money in. They must have a lot of money. They're well-dressed. They probably have a lot of money. So they come in and they're dumping their money in. And then an old widow comes up, and, and she is poor. The word for that is, um, it only occurs here in the New Testament. It means poor. It could mean extremely poor. She has 
nothing. And I just picture hobbling up to one of those trumpets and dropping in these two little copper coins. They were lepta, the smallest coin in currency. You couldn't make anything smaller. It was about one one hundredth of a daily wage. So just nothing. I mean, compared to what the rich people were putting in, this is nothing. And she drops her two copper coins in the, in the uh, offering, and she goes her way. Now, why were they putting money in there? Um, this was probably for free will offerings. So people would come, if they had some money and they, they just felt generous to the Lord, they would dump some cash in there. And that money would go to the upkeep of the temple and that kind of stuff. Um, Jim's translation said into the treasury. Um, the ESV says offering box. So when you think of offering box, I think of a box with a hole in the lid and you drop it in. But um, I think the treasury is probably the better way to understand that. It went into behind a wall into the, the temple. So it wasn't just a box sitting out that somebody could take away. Um, and so this woman puts her, her lepta, her two tiny little coins in, and Jesus commends her for that. He says, this widow put in more than all of them. Now, how on earth can that be? She put in the smallest amount possible. How could she put in more than all of them? Well, it's because they put in from what they had. They have an abundance. God has blessed them with an abundance. And they took a portion of that, and they gave it to God. Is that a bad thing? I've heard sermons before where they said that these trumpet things were like made out of brass, and so you'd pour your money in, and it would be really loud, and people could tell you. You know, like when you go to uh, the grocery store, and people are putting change in the change counter thing, is making all that noise. That's what was going on, and these people were showing off. I don't see any condemnation here, and I don't think this is a bad thing for them to do. A free will offering was directed by God. They were fine in what they were doing. They put in their free will offering to God. They gave freely to him. The problem wasn't that they didn't give enough or didn't give you know, from the heart or something. It was this old woman was showing to the, fair, to the scribes and to us what it means to trust in the Lord. She gave not out of her checking account or her 401k that's just blossoming. She took what she had that day and said, well, all I have is this, but I'm going to give it to the Lord. How do you do that? How on earth can you do that? She could do that because apparently she trusted the Lord. Remember, in Romans it says it's impossible, without faith it's impossible to please God. When Jesus looks at her and is pleased with her, it, it is because of her faith that she demonstrates by giving these two little coins. That's what makes her truly great in the kingdom, is the amount of faith that she had. She didn't say, well, I've got two Copper coins, I'll give one to the Lord, and then I'll see if I can buy you know, a handful of grain with this last one or something. She gave it all to the Lord and said, whatever you have for me today will be sufficient. And she trusted in him. That's faith. That's faith that transcends pride. When you're more concerned about how you look in public than you know, make sure my robes are nice, you can't give that money away because I've got to have some to buy the right robes. Um, they got this new line of robes out this week at... at um, J.C. Penney, and I've got to go get the newest robe because all the other scribes are wearing the new robe, and I don't want to be left out. So I, I got some money. Here, I'll give this much to the Lord, and I'm going to go buy my robe because, well, isn't that a religious duty? It's, it's my, my role as a scribe. This is what I should be doing. This isn't for me. This isn't selfish. Do you see that line of reasoning? You need to be set free from that. <laughs> that that's what this woman has done is she has been set free from this I need mentality. Now, Jesus is not saying that every single one of us has to give 
everything we've got. Notice this is not a sermon on tithing. It's a sermon about trusting in the Lord. So the, the application of this, how this comes back, is he, we, we gather those three statements up together. We have to understand who our Messiah is. The, the anointed one who's coming to rescue us, who's coming to, to bring his kingdom to us, he is more than David's son. He's no less than David's son, but he is certainly more than David's son. He is the Lord. He is at the right hand of God. You know what that means? That's a position of authority, a position of power. The, the king's right hand was reserved for those in special positions of power and authority. So for Jesus to ascend to the throne of glory, to God's throne, and be at his right hand means this man is, is reigning over everything I have. That was what happened when Joseph was elevated. Is he was at Pharaoh's right hand. He was in that position of authority. This is our Messiah. This is the one who's coming to set us free. This is the one who's coming to rescue us, the one who's coming to rule over us. He is currently at the right hand of glory. That's why I read from, from um, Revelation before we prayed, is we need to have that kind of big, what's called beatific, beatific vision of who God is. We need to understand Jesus is ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of glory even now. And angels rightly surround him and praise him for who he is. Worthy is the lamb to open the scroll. Our Messiah is worthy to carry out God's plan throughout history. So if you don't have that big view of who God is, then it's really easy to have an overinflated view of yourself. I am all that, after all. And the challenge to the scribes, and therefore the challenge to us, is have a right view of God, have a right view of ourselves so that we can be liberated to be as generous as this poor widow. And I don't want to say the amount you must put into the plate. That is up to you. That's, that's the Holy Spirit telling you what is appropriate. That is an expression of your understanding of who God is, your love for who God is, to say, I trust him. And I think the wise thing to do at this point would be give more this month than I did last month. The wise thing to do this month might be to give less. It, it isn't the amount. That's why he said two left, it was greater than everything they put in. It isn't the amount. It's the heart. And you get the heart by not being proud, by understanding who the Messiah is. So Jesus invited the, the scribes in. He said, come to this. Stop being full of yourself and come and, and join the kingdom. Be with me. As he's getting ready to go be crucified, he's still inviting people in. He's still calling. Come and join me. Be part of what is coming instead of full of yourself. I think it's a beautiful way to begin our launch into the, the last week of his life is, is with an invitation, with a call to humility, to uh, an announcement of his own greatness. Because in the dark days that come, it can get lost. There, there's a lot of judgment that comes, and so it can get lost. So... I just want to ask you again to, to evaluate yourself in light of this. If you struggle with pride, or even if you don't struggle, I guess especially if you don't struggle with pride, you just need to be aware. The answer to struggling with pride is a bigger view of God, an appropriate view of God. It is not um, denying yourself, um, cutting yourself down, self-deprecating humor, making fun of yourself, denying any compliment that ever comes. 
that will be a form of negative pride. You become proud of your humility. The, the freedom from it is to recognize who you are before God, but to understand who God is. So that's the, the, the link there. So disciples, this is what your master is calling you to do. Ready to engage? Are we ready to, to, to struggle with, with pride, to struggle with humility, to struggle with generosity in whatever form it looks like? He's given us the power in that he's given us himself. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, the, the, the God of the universe, the one who holds all things together, who was and is and is to come, will lay down his life, will be poorly treated, abused, handed over to the Gentiles, and executed, and then on the third day rise again. Lord, if you could come from your throne of glory, if you could come from the, the position of being surrounded by angels, if you could add to your eternal existence human nature, and then suffer abuse and scorn like that in order to receive even greater glory, even more glory as you gather more people to yourself. Lord, can you empower us to have that same attitude? Lord, could we endure for a while the shame knowing that what lies on the other side is the glory, the glory of who you are? So Lord, I pray for all of us that we would, all of us struggle against pride Lord, that we would have a giant view of who our God is and that that would set our view of everything else right. Please grant us that, Holy Spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen.